are here with Mark Sowersby. He wrote the book Forgiving the Nightmare. There's actually a new edition out with Mark Batterson's endorsement on there. So that is really cool. Every time I talk about your book, I say this because I just think it is the coolest thing. Mark graduated high school at a third grade reading level and is dyslexic. And the coolest thing about that is not only did he write a book, but it is one of the most powerful books I've ever read. So coming from somebody who shouldn't have even been able to write a book at all, the fact that you did it is so incredible. And then the fact that it's probably, I mean, really one of the most powerful books I've ever read is even more incredible. I kept turning the page and I was like, I can't put this book down. And then I was putting sticky notes all over every page. I was like, people have got to hear this. It's so good. First of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for such kind words you said about me and my book. And yeah, it's awesome that we were able to get Mark Batterson, the author of The Circle Maker. He endorsed our book. So we were able to relaunch our cover. And in that relaunching our cover, we put his quote on there. It's amazing what God is doing in the ministry. Uh, The 700 Club has called me up. I've been down to Florida to be on CTN, the Christian television network. And God is just opening up doors to uh, share this testimony. Testimony. And your words about my book is just a blessing. Thank you so much. It's a big yeah. deal. That's why I'm with you because <laughs> you're a big deal too. So really you. You know, my story being dyslexic, you know, I had lots of people. My wife is the champion of my story. You know, she's always behind the scene, but she's the one that can read Mark writing and spelling and be able to help me turn it into something a little bit more legible for everybody else to read. My wife is the hero and is the one who came beside me and held my hands up as we went through this journey together. But I'm so glad that my book, Forgiving the Nightmare and how we went through seasons of pain and her abuse and sorrow was able to minister to you and others. Before we get started, I do want to say this book, you said and minister to others, you don't have to have gone through what we're about to get into to glean wisdom and strength from his story. I really would encourage you to read this book because there's so much truth and power and encouragement and inspiration, not just from the abuse side of it. All walks of life, this is a book for you. I titled the book Forgiving the Nightmare for a reason. You know, my nightmare was abuse, but not everybody's nightmare is abuse. But I would argue that everybody has a nightmare, something that we have to lay at the foot of the cross, we have to wrestle with, we have to pray on, we have to trust it. So that's why I called it Forgiving the Nightmare. Again, whatever the nightmare in your life is, an abuse, an addiction, a sorrow, a pain, whatever it may be, I believe God can help us walk through that and bring us to a place of mercy and grace grace to help us no longer be tethered to those things in our past, but to allow God to set us free. So we all got a nightmare. And I bet many of us are trying to forgive yeah. it. Amen. Yeah. And amen. So let's just get started on that. Sure. You know, my mom married a man 20 years her younger, and I was seven years old when this man came into our home and he came into our home with just a poison, if you would. He was an abuser. He attacked me and I was the brunt of his pain. And a part of that abuse and that pain, I was sexually abused. I was emotionally abused. I was physically abused. I was verbally abused. In all the kinds of ways I was sold to others for their sick, perverted, lustful, hurtful ways came to me. I was stabbed. I was beaten. I was burnt. So yeah, all 
the psychological things for seven years between uh, the age of seven to 14. That was almost a daily occurrence in my life that I was being abused in one form or another. How do you get to a place of forgiveness? People who have gone through what you just said, I'm telling you, you're the exception, not the rule. But people can get to where you are. Sure. How did that even start? It's a journey. I'm going to be really honest with you. I serve a great God, but I had a great problem. Yeah. It's a journey. It's a process. Yeah. You have to learn to die to self. It's one step forward, sometimes two steps back. This testimony wasn't birthed just in a hallelujah, in a Sunday morning prayer meeting. It was birthed with sweat, tears, and pain. I cried, I swear, I yelled. Every emotion under the book that anybody would have. I wanted revenge. I wanted to be justified. I wanted to be right. I had a chip on my shoulder. So yeah, I went through all the processes of going through the healing, trying to deal with, trying to understand. So all the emotions and questions I went through. And I think the journey of forgiveness didn't start off with forgiveness. It's not like one day I woke up and said, I want to forgive. What happened was, is I wanted more of God. But what started that? Mark, because if somebody's listening and they don't know God, for us to kind of say that, it's like, first of all, why would he even want more of God? Because people would say God caused that. For somebody who's going through this and they're listening, let's kind of normalize the feelings that you felt before your relationship with the Lord so that we can eliminate some of the shame that they feel, eliminate some of the guilt that they feel for even feeling the things they feel. I was angry. I was confused. I was mad. I was Mm -hmm. hurt. You know, if there's a title for one of those feelings, I felt it. And it came in waves and, and they were instant. It wasn't just, oh, today I feel this. This moment I feel this. And it would quickly switch and I'd be going in and out of guilt and shame and hurt and pain and anger and sorrow and regret. And, and they were all happening all at once. At the end of that time, I just felt numb. I felt empty. There was no more feelings left. I think I was all poured out. I was seven years old. I didn't have the mind of an adult. I didn't understand how to reason. I was a child caught in this abuse as a victim. And I felt all those feelings, not knowing how to articulate them or understand them or explain them. So they would come through me rapidly. They'd come through me and it would just pour out to the place that I just had emptiness. You know, there was nothing. The anger was too big. The sadness was too hard. The revenge was too much. It was just an empty feeling that just left me like that empty blank shell. I just did not feel anymore. You get to a place where you're either going to drown yourself or you're going to push through. And what was that moment for you that you're like, I'm either going to stay stuck and drown or I'm going to move forward? I don't know if it was just one time. I think there's different steps on the journey. Mm -hmm. So the abuse ended at 14 years old. And I think there's a couple of reasons why it ended. First of all, I was stronger in stature and I was going to fight back my abuser. But the other thing that happened is I found somebody who believed in me. I found my defender. I found an adult that said this shouldn't happen and they heard me and they listened and they stood up for me. So I think those two events was the first phase of me beginning to heal, if you would. I didn't know that's what it was called then. I just was glad to have a family member say, it's going to stop. I believe in you. I'm on your side. Now, what's unique about that moment is that when it all came out, if you would, as the other family members heard about it, it brought up all kinds of emotions as it should. There was righteous anger and people wanted to fight and legal and fighting and argument and all kinds of pain. And people came to me all the time asking me how I felt and what I needed. But see, I already dealt with this for seven years.
years before it became public. Now, in that seven years, I built a system. Now, the system wasn't healthy. The system wasn't mature. The system wasn't clear, but it was my system. It was the walls that I hid behind. So now, now it's all out in public and people are angry and fighting and strife and defending and yelling and, and everybody caring about me every second. How are you? How are you? How are you? How are you? And I was just, again, I was just too blown away with all this. It went from one extreme to another. It was always quiet. It was always in the secret. It was always in the dark as it shouldn't have been because it shouldn't have happened, but that's where it was to now everybody, counselors at school, uh, you know, my friends, uh, my, my, my family, everybody wanted to know how I was doing. And again, I was kind of lost in this journey because I didn't know. I didn't know what was, oh, did I felt a little guilty because everybody, was it my fault? Everybody was yelling. Was it my fault that my uncle and my family and my mother? And so all these different emotions and feelings and expressions. And again, I was only 14. Uh, I was bigger than seven, but still just 14. So I didn't know how to express all that. So again, it's like two waves. Now, the first step is I had someone believe in me that when it became exposed, brought up a whole nother level of emotion. As you're talking, I'm just picturing something so evil and awful that I didn't want to happen in the first place that I am ashamed of, embarrassed of, just disgusted by. Sure. My body has been violated. And then for everybody to know, does that bring a level of even more embarrassment and shame and guilt? You know, now there's a word we use. We call it being groomed, right? Back yes. then, we didn't know that word. Now the victim is groomed. And when you're groomed as a victim, as I was, I didn't know that term then, but in studying and reading, I found out I was groomed. One of the first lies that our attacker tells us that it's our fault. And so now everybody knows and they're not mad at us. And I can't say that everybody's attention was negative. Most of it was positive. They cared about me. They wanted to support me. They wanted to help me. They kept saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And I didn't know. I didn't know what I needed. I just was glad that ended. But again, they were worried about what my future would look like and what this scar would do to me and how would it affect me. And But I didn't know how all the depth of their concern. All I knew is they were coming to me all the time. So it was like these two loud voices, the loudness of the secret that now was exposed become the loudness of those who cared. And I knew it came from caring, but I just didn't know how to deal with it. So again, I pushed into my own defenses. And where did I learn those defenses? I learned them when I was being abused. So I pushed back in behind my walls, if you were. Now, again, those walls were unhealthy. Those walls were immature. Those walls were not clear. But that's the only place I know was safe. And I didn't do it because I was angry at the people who cared about me. I didn't do it because I didn't want their help. I did it because I didn't know how to go anyplace else. So this broken system that I built for the seven years prior, I ran back to. And a lot of that system, I was beating up myself. So somebody who's a victim, they are experiencing everything you just said. Everything's in the open. They now start their healing process, but healing to them looks chaotic and crazy and going back to retreating, everything we just talked about, right? So they start spiraling into extreme bad habits. Some people sell their own body because of it. Some people get very promiscuous because of it. And is that because they're trying to figure out to heal and they just 
Why is that? You know, I'm not a complete expert. I'm not a psychiatrist or a doctor. I'm I'm a preacher who's a victim. So I share this from my own perspective. Uh, What I would say is that everybody's story through trauma affects them a little different. So it's very hard to to get to the fine tooth comb. I mean, everybody has their background, their experiences, their makeup, why they do what they do. I think in general, yes, I think control is a big part of it because we never felt control. See, we had no control. When that trauma, that abuse, that nightmare that hurts one of us, we were never in control. For me, my abuse started the moment I got home from school. And in school, I was bullied, right? So I get bullied in school and now I'm coming home. And the moment I walked in the door, I didn't know what I was going to face. And it was sometimes all the ugliness I explained before or even worse. So here I am in no control. Why everybody's trying to blame me? Because that's the first lie of the abuser, the attacker. It's your fault. So so yeah, I think that you know all these people come into your life and they're like, we're going to help you. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm not ready to give myself to that. So I start making decisions with this skewed view of, of myself, skewed view of others, skewed view of, of why am I going to let you help me? The last person said they're going to help me, abuse me. So, you know, I'm going to be in charge of me. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do this. And I felt all that. I felt all that. Yo, don't tell me, hey, you can't understand what I went through. How dare you even pretend? And I went through all that. You know, where were you? Why weren't you there to help me? So there's anger, there's misunderstanding, there's confusion, there's a sense of control. I think one of the hardest scars that I was left with that I still deal with today is that my insecurity. My body heal. Uh, my spirit is is healing in Christ. Amen. But the lie of the lack of value, my abuser left me insecure. He stole my dignity. He stole my value. He stole my importance. So all the time I was seeking that, not knowing how to receive it because what was underneath me was ground that was crumbling because of the abuse. So I couldn't build anything on it. I was always waiting for the other foot to drop. I was always waiting for the lie to happen. I was always waiting for the person to say, yeah, but and trauma, that's what happens. There's so many lies we've told ourselves, so many lies we've believed. And so when you want to start getting to a place of healing, there's so much that you have to retrain your brain. So when a parent is trying to help their child, which you had a very opposite part of this because you did not have a parent who wanted to help you. You you actually, it was your uncle, right? I didn't have that. I didn't have a parent that wanted to help. I had my uncle help, but I am a parent, right? So I think that sometimes the desire to help from the parent I'm going to fix it. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to make sure everything's okay. They rush in and out of good and genuine and honest and pure heart. But the victim is so taken back because we never had it. So we're seeing the people we love and, you know, there's confusion going on. You hear your loved ones go, I'm going to kill that person. And you're thinking, wow, what did I, you know, you see your mom cry, you see your dad cry. Is that my fault? And it's hard because again, I'm a parent. I want to fix this. I want to defend you. I want to kill those people who hurt my baby. I get it. But sometimes just listen, listen to the victim. Now they're not going to say it like you want to hear it. I think sometimes we want to assist systematically. Blah, blah, blah. One, two, three, ABC, XYZ. They're going to just talk. 
And in that talking, it's going to be a little over here and a little over here. And then they're going to talk about something else. And then they're going to come back to over this. And then they're going to talk about here. And the Bible talks about if we have ears, let us hear. And sometimes we just have to hear what they're saying. But again, our own psyche, being a dad, being a mom, being a loved one, being an aunt, you want to say, honey, buddy, pal, I'm sorry. And because I feel so bad, I want to fight this for you. We're glad it stopped, but now we don't know how to go forward. What the abuser did is he stole from us our identity. He made us this object of perversion that attached itself to our psyche. You know, you're a child, right? You know, when other kids are, are dreaming, you're thinking, okay, when I get home today, I'll probably be raped twice and maybe stabbed. That's the mind of my nine-year-old head. That was the eight-year-old to me. So now, you know, I don't know what I am. I'm glad I'm not being raped, beaten, but now I don't know what I am. And so when all this, this justified righteousness of support comes to us, I still don't know how to receive it. And then people go, well, this is what we want to do for you. Uh, 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 okay, uh, maybe I don't need that. This is what we're going to say for you. Uh, 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 you know, that grooming of always saying, yes, I, I just wrote an article and I'm, it's probably going to be the title of my next book. And they stole my no. And I think we don't know how to say no yet. We didn't know how to say no to our abuser. And now we don't know how to say no to our supporter. You know, I don't want you to beat it. I don't need you to kill anybody. How about we just go get ice cream? Those that support us or love us, they're not abusing us. But out of their zeal to fight, sometimes, just sometimes, they're not listening to what we need them to fight for. And out of that, that passion to love, sometimes we've never learned how to say no. And again, I'm still working on that. I still got lots of research. That's actually pretty powerful to say sometimes it's just not what they need and we just need to be there. But I think especially as a parent of a victim or something, we want to overcompensate to help exactly. them. And like you said, sometimes what we do in good heart isn't what they need. And so how did you finally say, I'm no longer going to be a victim? What was your turning point? How did that look and go? From the abuse to that moment, you're talking about my life, my story. There's about 35, 40 years between the, the end of the abuse for me to confidently say, I'm no longer a victim, but now I'm victorious. So that journey of doing that had many, many facets and expressions and prayer and friends and disappointments and victories. It's been my life. So for me to say here on this side of 50, the other side of 50, to say, listen, I'm not a victim, I'm victorious. There's a large journey in it. But that journey started with a lot of other steps, step by step, precept by precept. And I think the next big thing that happened in my life after my defender was my faith. I was a young man. It was the mid 80s, 1985. We had mullets. It was the rule. I was cool. Okay. And then that summer, my desire, because I was abused by a male to have a girlfriend, you know, I didn't know how to be a boyfriend. I didn't know what a relationship was, but I wanted to have a girlfriend. I wanted everybody to see me. Hey, look, I got a girlfriend. You know, I was a, probably a horrible boyfriend, but, but it was important for me to say, look, that summer we were living in an apartment complex and the lifeguard was a girl. She was a 16 year old girl. And she asked me to go to church. And to be honest, I would have went anywhere she asked me to go. And that night, her and her boyfriend picked her and her boyfriend picked me up for church. And I walked into a youth group with other kids with mullets and jean jackets. And, and we wore our boots a certain way, you know, and it was the 80s. And they played, you know, rock and roll music. And the pastor talked in ways that I could understand. It wasn't King James. You know, it wasn't thou shall 
not. It was, hey, God is real. And so I think from my defender to my faith was probably the next big step of me on the journey to become whole. But again, there's a lot of things in that. So you talk about your faith, but what does that look like? Because for some people, they're angry at God and they say, this is God's fault. So to get to the point of faith, to get to the point of believing that God is good, knowing that God is good, what does that look like for you? Well, you know, for me, there's a couple of things you said there I'd like to address. First of all, I was that person. I asked that question. God, if you're so good, why did I get raped for seven years? Right? That was a real question. Now, here's the thing. I got a real answer. I asked a real question, a hard question, and I got a hard answer. Now, I can explain to your guests today, to your viewers, what the answer was. And to some of them, they'll say, that doesn't mean anything. That's a, you know, what is it? But for me, it was the perfect answer. It was a hard answer, but it was a perfect answer. Now, sometimes when we ask God the hard questions, he's going to give us a hard answer. Now, my answer from God may not satisfy anybody else. They would hear it and go, listen, Jack, what are you talking about? That's, you know, But for me, in my house, it was the right answer that satisfied me, that that helped me to begin to trust. What you're saying is so crucial and important. God will talk to you in the very way you need to be spoken to. So the answer for Mark, it may not be the answer for you, but Mark, will you let us know what was that answer for you? In the book of Genesis, in chapter 32, it talks about a man named Jacob. And Jacob begins to wrestle with an angel. All night long, they wrestle. Now, Jacob up in the Old Testament, the name actually means deceiver or liar. And he begins to wrestle with this angel all night long, and they wrestle and to the point where the angel touches his hip and pulls it out of socket. But yet, Jacob will not let go. And the angel says, look, it's almost morning, and the day is coming. Let go. Let's end this match. And Jacob says, I won't let go until you bless me. Then the angel says, what's your name? And Jacob has to say, it's Jacob. He yells out, deceiver, liar. And the angel says, no, from now on, your name will be Israel. Now in the NIV, it says that he named the place Israel because you wrestled with God and man and you overcame. So Jacob went from deceiver to Israel, which could be interpreted as overcomer. We have to wrestle with some of those ugly things, anger, faith, past, people, family, mom, dad, the whole thing. We have to wrestle with that. And sometimes when we wrestle with it and we don't let go, we say, God, I'm not letting go until you bless me. We get the answer. Now, my answer was this. And again, some people are going to hear it and going, hey, that doesn't make sense. But the Lord put in my heart, wasn't in an audible voice. Voice, but he spoke to my spirit. He said, Mark, I chose you from your mother's womb to be my servant. And the enemy, the thief, he knew that I chose you. And from the beginning of your birth, from your conception, because I did not know my father, I was born from an affair. From the beginning of your conception, the enemy has tried to destroy you and sift you. But I has always been with you. So even though the darkness came, even though the pain came, even though the sorrow and the tears came, I was with you. I know you didn't feel me then. I know that you didn't didn't hear me then, but I have always been with you. Now, for me, that brought tears down my face. And for me, that satisfied the quench of desire of where were you, God? Others will hear that and say that does not satisfy them. But to me, it was my perfect answer. So what did that journey look like going through that? Okay, you have your faith now. What does that look like navigating the waters to getting to a place of forgiveness and forgiving the nightmare? You know, and again, like I said, it's a 30-year 
year process for me. It wasn't a one day thing. It, it, it was a daily occurrence. So what happened in my journey, I went from brokenness, dysfunction, pain, sorrow, anger. There was addiction around my home. There was violence, all that to this church where everybody wanted to hug me. I'm like, okay, when you say that to abuse victim, we're going to lay hands on you. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, so I know the church has its problems. I know the church is not perfect. I know the people in the church are not perfect. And there's been ugly, ugly things that have happened in the church. But the church I went to was not perfect. But there was some good people who loved me the best they could. They didn't always know my story. They didn't always know my background. But there were good people who loved me and tried to show me. So here I am. I'm growing up. Faith is important to me. And God God is important to me, but I'm still wrestling with this pain. I still am always reverting back to my safe place, which was created in a dysfunction. That's what protects me. And finally, I had to learn to trust God. And that was hard. I, I tell people before I told my wife, I love you and will you marry me? And before I saw her unborn children in her eyes, you know, in a romance through life, I remember thinking, I trust this girl. And that was the first thing that would bring me to love this girl, to honor this girl, to respect this girl, to have life, to have children, to do life together. But the first seed was, I trust her. So in the same sense, I had to start learning how to trust God. And trusting God was in the little things. You know, I didn't wake up the first day I went to church, first day I said a sinner's prayer and say, okay, I'm going to forgive the guy who raped me. I said, God, I need you. One of the reasons why I love having this conversation with you is because you come from such a place of this is reality. This is what it's really like. But you really can get to a place of healing and forgiving. It's just a journey. And I love that you normalize that. Thank you so much for being authentic and for normalizing the process. My abuser, his language was lies. He didn't just tell lies. It wasn't little white lies. His language, what he dealt with, what he spoke in, what he lived was lies. So since then, I never want to deal with it. Oh, I'm not perfect in any way. And I'm sure I put my foot in my mouth or exaggerated a story or two, but I don't got time for fake. I already been through fake. I learned to tell, you know, hey, I fell off the swing when I really got punched in the face. I tripped down the stairs when I really was punched in the ribs. So, you know, I just don't want to live in fake anymore. You know, I believe God's real and it brought me to a place to learn how to trust. Did God's love come to me fully and completely and instantly and it was a matter of fact and suddenly God got, yes, all that happened. But for me, the receiver of that, it was slow. I didn't know what love was. I didn't know what healthy was. I had these systems that I built as a child to protect me from abuse. I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know who to listen to. I was angry. I had to go through all the expressions of anger, guilt, shame, pain, frustration, you know, all the things. And, and you know, and here I am going to church, raising my hand so much that, you know, I went to Bible college. I became a pastor. And even then, even after I had my own churches and I buried people and married people and preached on Sunday morning and went on missions trips, even then I was still dealing with, hey God, I could give you everything, but I can't give you this. Don't ask me to forgive give this one who abused my body. So yeah, it was a real journey and it came with its uh, its own process and there was real questions and, and there was real tears and anger and disappointment and feeling like junk some days and feeling like the captain of the ship other days, you know? Sure. And when you finally got to a place where you forgave your abuser, how did that happen? I always thought I'd wake up one day and all that pain, hurt, sorrow, this 
dysfunction would be gone. You know, I said the prayer. I went to church. I read the scripture. I confessed. I claimed. But that day never happened. There are days I wake up and that pain is as familiar as it was the moment it happened. I have triggers just like everybody else. You know, a certain sound, smell, taste, volume, place brings back triggers. You know, I was always waking up hoping that one day it would all be gone. It hasn't gone away. Well, what do you mean, Pastor? What do you, how can you say God's good if it hasn't gone away? What happened is that mountain of pain, that mountain of sorrow, hurt, lies, and dysfunction that shined over me or shadowed over my life for so long is still there. The only thing that happened is God became bigger. God's word, God's grace, God's love, God's truth, God's spirit, his support, his kindness, and his grace, everything God is became bigger than the mountain of pain that shadows over my life. And when I say that to you, I say it knowing how big that mountain of pain is. So yes, do I wake up with triggers? Do I wake up with sorrow? Do I wake up remembering? I can, but then my mind chooses to remember how good God is. I remember that he loved me. He sent his son to die for me. He gave me his word and his spirit. He called me out of the miry clay. He does not make junk and he's always been with me. So these words of God's grace that, hey, when you stumble, I pick you up. I'm the lover of your soul. I am the lifter of your head. These words of grace that reminds us that his mercies are made new every day. These words become louder than the words of the lie of my past. And some days, is it hard? Do you have to really focus on those being louder for people who are struggling with this? On those days, how do you make it louder? How do you make it louder when sometimes the lies are louder? How do you trump that? Do you speak it over and over? What do you do? I dwell on it. You know, I'm not one to speak it a lot of times. I just say, hey, Lord, I stand in this. I trust that. I make a choice. He's probably very controversial, but there was a great preacher from the earliest 20th century, Smith Wiggles. And Smith Wigglesworth said this, I never pray more than five minutes. He raised people from the dead. He healed the sick. And the person looked at them and said, how can you do all those incredible things without praying more than five minutes? And he said, young man, because I never go more than five minutes without praying. But I will say that my life is that constant conversation with God. Uh, It's in the car. It's at the grocery store. It's walking in the house. Sometimes it's on my knee and sometimes it's at the altar, but sometimes it's in between commercials. It's just, I'm in constant conversation, fighting with myself about something arguing with God. I wish he did something I wanted him to do, but he did it his way and not my way. And I think I try to stay in that place. And when those days that the shadow of my past rises up, I stand and say, God, I may not feel it. I may not hear it, but I know that you're there. It's kind of like a husband and wife, right? There's days when you know you love each other. You might want to shoot each other, but you know you love each other. You know that you got each other's back. Just, you know, give me some space today, honey. I love you, but you you don't doubt the love. Yeah, right now I wish they would just, you know, take a long walk and, you know, I just need some me time. And I think I think sometimes for me, when those lies try to hold me back, I go, God, I may not be hearing the angels sing right now. And I might be hearing the lies a bit louder, but I know that I know that I know that you love me. And the only thing I can tell you is through the 30 years of this journey, God's voice has become louder. It's become less and less the days of waking up and hurt are becoming 
far less than waking up and blessing. There is truth to some of the things that we feel because there's a reason that we feel them. But sometimes we have to say, I know I feel this way, but I am choosing not to live that way today. I am choosing not to see it that way today. The choice has to be greater and louder than the feeling too. And that choice sometimes has to happen every instant. But there's an atmosphere around us. We breathe in oxygen. It's the atmosphere. There's a certain pressure around us. And that's how we live in. Now, the abused child lived in an atmosphere of pain, rejection, lies, disgusting, lust, and all that was the atmosphere that we lived in that created our makeup. Now, when you haven't been raised in that atmosphere, you're looking at us going, why are you doing that? Right, because you we were you weren't raised in the atmosphere. The oxygen wasn't the same in our world metaphorically. So now we're reasoning through the atmosphere, the event that took place, and that reasoning doesn't just stop when the abuse stops. That reasoning can go well into adulthood. And in my mind, the only thing that can change that is God. The Bible tells us the Word of God will transform our mind. We'll take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. But again, that's that's a process that's step by step one day at a time. You know, the, the Bible talks about moving mountains. And, and I'll, I'll tell you this. I remember I said, God, the mountain in my life is my attacker, my family, my mother. I'll never be able to forgive them, God. And, and don't ask me to do it. God, I'll never be able to forgive that mountain. And God kind of took me aside, if you would. And he said, Mark, let me teach you to do something. I said, okay, God, you know, this is all metaphor. And he said, let me teach you how to move this pebble. I can move a pebble. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a strong guy. I can move it. You know, and I, I got pretty confident I could move a pebble. And then I could move a stone. And then I could move a boulder. And then I could move a hill. And then I could move a rock. And then I could move. And then one day at the end of 30 years of tears and sweat and fighting and ups and downs, God came to me, said, Mark, let's go move that mountain. I said, God, but I can't. He said, how'd you move the pebble? How'd you move the stone? How'd you move the rock? How'd you move the boulder? How'd you move the hill? I said, well, you were with me and I'll be with you moving this mountain. And that's how we do it. And again, it's it doesn't mean that the past isn't there. It doesn't mean that I don't want justice. It doesn't mean that I want to have kumbaya moments. I'm not running to my abuser and having you know, Christmas morning. You know, we're not sharing ugly sweaters. You know, we're not doing that. And forgiveness is a daily process. You forgave him, but it's a, it's a choice that you have to make over and over again sometimes because the humanity part of us wants to go back to, I hate this man. But to the people who need to get to this place as well, give yourself grace in the fact that you have to make the decision. When we forgive someone, that doesn't mean, oh, I forgave them and everything was butterflies and rainbows the rest of my life. There was struggle. There's still struggle. There's still pain. There's still, like you said, you still have triggers to this day. But how do you release yourself from the victim mindset to be able to do that? The church world says, hey, Kay, I forgave her and we move on forward. But when you have this much trauma, that forgiveness has to be genuine. So we have to really know what do we mean by forgiveness? How do we define it? And I think for me, I define forgiveness as I put it in God's hand. So I I have healthy boundaries. I have found my counselors. I found psychiatrists and doctors and coaches and pastors. I found my team. I have to forgive sometimes daily. I seek justice. It doesn't mean you're off the hook 
you know, hey, I forgave you for, you know, no, you did something criminal and you need to face charges for that. It's never really forgive and forget. I mean, I think that's a fleshly statement. How can I forget what happened to me? It's a part of my narrative. So now I have to live with this scar. And what am I going to do with it? Am I going to be so angry with it that it's going to define me? Or am I going to find a place to be able to say, that's not what I am. I'm not that abused victim. I'm not just the sum of my attacker, that I have my own life. I make my own mistakes. My own mouth makes enough problems for me. I think that I had to come to a place to say, not everything in my life was happening because I was abused. Now, that was a tough place to come to. Again, that was the journey. We're going from 14 to 50, but I didn't want to give my abuser control or room in my spirit, in my mind, or in my heart, or my makeup. So forgiving cut the ties, severed the strings, if you would. I was no longer shackled or connected to this person anymore. And now I'm going to live in the freedom that God's given me in the freedom that comes by wrestling with flesh and man and and realizing these scars that happen, that they're just, they, I, I wish they could go away. It was unfair that I had them. But for many victims, we come up with this system to protect ourselves. We come up in a dysfunctional place. We're usually immature, but to pry them out of our hands and people want to come and say, let it go. And I'm like, we're not letting them go. Only God can say, give it to me. And your family comes and says, no, come on, let it go. No, but it's not healthy. I don't care if it's not healthy. It's protected me. It's mine. It's what helped me. So only God can say, give it to me. You know, when Jesus ascended to heaven and said, some believed and some doubted. You know, so wherever spirit of flesh is, there's belief and doubt. Even in you, when you're walking through it, you know, not just outwardly, but when you're walking through it and God says, hey, let it go. You're like, hey, I believe, but uh, I doubt too. The relationship with your spouse, it took time to develop that relationship to get to a certain place of trust. That didn't mean that you put your spouse to the side until you got the trust. You had to have relationship to get to that point. And that's the same thing with Jesus. Allow yourself time to develop that relationship because Jesus gives you that time. We look at Jesus as we would look at Jesus is love. He is grace. He is good. And when we are struggling in those times, when we are struggling with doubt, there is so much grace for you in that moment. The more you talk, the more you have relationship, it doesn't mean it goes away, but the easier it gets to speak over the lies, the doubt. There is grace and love in Jesus, and He is there in a gracious way. He is not there to say, I cannot believe you handled it so poorly today. Being a pastor, I've been able to go into people's homes and meet them and spend time with them. And there was this couple I met and they were married well over 50 years, a sweet older couple that went through life together. They had their ups and downs and lefts and rights. And I remember as I sat there with the husband, the wife was in the other room and she yelled out, honey, get me the thing off the thing. That's exactly what she said. That man got up and got what she wanted. And I thought, how in the world did he know what she wanted? That's 50 plus years of marriage. They they knew each other, finished each other's sentences. They knew each other's thoughts. They were parents and grandparents. They did 50 years together. So there they are in this senior winter of their life. When you walk with God, God begins to speak to us and we know him. And when those past rise up, those triggers, his voice becomes louder. His sheep will know his voice. So at first, yeah, you kind of like searching for it. 
were, God, is that really, is that pizza or is that you? Is that guilt? Is that you? Is that the past? Is that religion? But I think as you begin to walk, God's going to say, let go of the thing. And you go, okay. And nobody's going to have to tell you what it is. Because God's going to say, you know what that thing is. Hey, let's go pray about that thing. All right, God. Hey, did you give me that thing yet? Oh, God, I'm working on it. So, you know, God knows us like that couple knew each other. And I think sometimes we got to give ourselves grace. God does. We got to give ourselves time. God is. God loves us. You're saved. He is the potter and we are the clay. And he's shaping and molding us. And some of us have been bruised and he's being really gentle around those spots. Really gentle. He's saying, it's going to be okay. My little kids, if they get hurt, right? Don't touch it. Don't touch it. You know, you got to put the Band-Aid on. You got to clean it. And I think sometimes that's what God does. You know, he comes beside us. Then before you know it, you know, he takes you on a journey and you're 50 plus years old and he says, write a book. And you say, God, but I'm a dyslexic. Did you forget? And he goes, how did you forgive? Well, you helped me. How are you going to write a book? It is very hard to believe somebody's that good. It is very hard to believe that somebody is that gracious, that patient, that loving, that understanding. It is very hard to believe that there is a possibility that somebody is like that. Exactly. Like I said, you're always waiting for the other foot to drop. I think that an abused victim, any victim, those two classic responses, fight or fight. And for me, I always ran. I was never one who fought. But others fight. And those are the classic two responses to trauma, to danger. Uh, you see that even the psyche of people, right? So people hear God and go, either they're going to run from him. I don't want nothing to do with your religion. Or they're going to fight him and go, well, if you were God, where were you? And those are kind of natural responses. I, I went through those responses because you never believe, yeah, okay, you said this stuff, you've been there for a while, but when are you going to leave too? When are you going to abandon me? When are you going to reject me just like everybody else has? You're saying all the right things now, but wait, wait till I have a bad day. Wait till I do something you don't want me to do. Wait till I disagree with you. You're going to leave me just like everybody else. And when you get to that place and you've had those bad days and you've wrestled with God and you've disagreed and you go, wow, God hasn't left me. When a family splits, when part of the family sides with the abuser, can't we just all be a family again? If somebody was telling you that as a victim, what would you say to them? It made me feel that my story was not as important. It made me feel less valuable. It made me feel rejected all again. And usually it comes out of a place where let's all just get along. Let it, let bygones be bygones. Well, you know, it's not like you wore my favorite shirt. You invaded my body for your own sexual perverted desire. Desire. It was not, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we made a mistake, you know, or hey, it was that I was a victim. I had no control. And when you say that to me, it seems like, well, aren't you over it yet? You know, it's not happening anymore, right? They said they were sorry. So it kind of diminishes me. Now, again, I didn't have that experience. My family rallied behind me and everybody in my corner believed me. My mom was the one that was caught in her own dysfunction and couldn't believe anything. But those around me believed me and I had support. They never took a side. I had anybody that was in their right mind believe me. So I thank God for that. But it diminishes. There isn't a happy tale here. There was a crime committed. Rape is a crime. 
call it molesting when it's a child, but it's rape and what it does to the person for the rest of their life. We could be here forever and how my wife and I had to pray through some things. I never knew what a healthy touch was. You know, and my wife reaches over to me for a healthy touch between a husband and wife and I locked up because I didn't know what a healthy touch was. I knew a lot about perverted and hurt and lustful touches. I didn't know what a healthy touch was. And, you know, so we prayed. We have four children. Everything's fine. I promise. But I remember that, you know, here she was reaching for her husband and I didn't know how to receive a healthy touch. I didn't know what what beautiful touches and, and healthy intimacy was. And, you know, we could spend hours talking about that. But I think to diminish somebody else's story for the sake of peace, because it's not peace. It's not. It's dysfunction. It's ignoring. It's a band-aid. But if you really want peace, sometimes it comes through the refining fire. So if you are watching this or listening to it, get his book. So much to take from this book. And I just appreciate all of your vulnerability, all of your openness, all of your willingness to talk, to help people get to a place of forgiveness, to help people start their journey of healing. You are showing the world it is possible to live your life not a victim, to help us understand how to do that. Before we go, if there is somebody listening and they are a victim of abuse, what would you say to them to start their journey of healing and forgiveness and getting to a place of being whole again? If you're a victim today or if something's happening in your life that's that ugly, go find somebody to tell. The first lie the enemy always wants to tell is that you're the only one. And then all the feelings that everybody will be angry or mad. Listen, you are an important person. And if you're being hurt today, tell authorities, tell your people that support you, tell your friends, your coaches. You know, I did not grow up in a time when there was advocacy and support and awareness as it is today. I think I came out of that last generation where it was still kind of, you didn't talk about it. But today, regardless of where you're at, if you need help, go find the help. And in that journey, if you need counselors, psychiatrists, medicine, God can use all those tools to help somebody through their process of healing. And I would suggest, you know, find God. I did not want to find a church. I would tell people I'm the least religious person in the world. You know, my journey didn't start with forgiveness. It started saying, God, I want you. And wanting more of God, the real God, God, not a religious God, God would then therefore bring me 30 years later to a place to really say, I have forgiven. I have a real honest view of forgiveness. I don't seek justice, but I don't seek parties either, you know? But I say, Lord God, it's in your hands and I trust you with it. So I've surrendered it to you. So no longer is it me. So find forgiveness, find those people that help. And if you've been abused and it's not happening anymore, give yourself grace and let those people around you give you grace. Mark, thank you for your time today. Thank you for coming on and sharing. And once again, it's uh, Mark Sowersby, Forgiving the Nightmare. You can find the book on Amazon. Amazon, Walmart, uh, CBD, uh, you know, Christian book, or my website at forgivingthenightmare.com. That's my cheesy book. <laughs> Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on and we'll talk again soon. Bye.